First Timothy chapter 5, we begin in verse 1, where Paul writes to Timothy, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 8. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We'll be looking uh, at this entire section, but I'll take verse 8 for being my text. But if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. As Bible-believing Christians, we recognize that God has ordained three different spheres of government. Writing to the Romans about civil government, Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 1, that the powers that be are ordained of God. And so submission to civil authority amounts to submission to God himself. And I always think it's worth noting that Paul is writing this with regard not to a Christian nation, but with regard to a pagan Roman Empire. I recognize that there can be challenges posed by civil governments to Christians, and that submission to civil governments cannot always be rendered, especially when those governments come between Christians and Christ. That can be a problem today as it was for the early church in ancient times. But as a general rule, Christians are to submit to civil government as unto the Lord. And then we have the sphere of church government. We've seen already in this epistle to Timothy that elders and deacons have been established by God for the government of the church. And there are certain qualifications that must be met to hold these offices. And I think it's worth noting, especially in our day and age, that the fact that church has this divinely ordained institutional structure certainly implies, implies very strongly, I might say, that home churches are not valid forms of church. The concept of a home church, I realize, is a popular one today, but it's not scriptural. And by home churches, I'm not now speaking of churches that simply meet in a house, 
The place a church meets is not really so much the issue. Indeed, this church met in a home in uh, the beginning of its existence. What I'm speaking of are gatherings that are not viable enough to have the necessary offices that God has ordained for the church. Dad does not in every instance qualify to be a teaching elder, and even if he does, the church is to be run by a plurality of elders and deacons. The third sphere we recognize that is ordained by God is what we could call family government. The family is yet another institution ordained by God for the good of his people and the advancement of his kingdom. The family has been recognized as the most basic and essential unit of a society. When the family breaks down, you can be sure that society itself breaks down too. And the Bible has much to say about the government of the home, the duties of husbands and wives and children are all elaborated in the New Testament epistles. The importance of this sphere of government under God's rule and the implication it holds for the validity of a Christian's profession of faith is brought out very plainly by Paul in verse 8 when he says, But if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And I find the verse to be very striking when it calls a professing Christian worse than an infidel for his failure to provide and oversee his own house. You'll notice it doesn't say that he's as bad as an infidel but that he's actually worse than an infidel. The implication is that even in the world of infidels, you find such a standard met by those that provide for their own. What I'd like to do this morning is to draw your attentions that the, for, uh, to the lessons that can be drawn from the practical instructions in these verses given to Timothy by Paul. While verse 8 can be taken as a focal point in the section, there are other lessons that emerge from the passage as well. So what we'll focus on this morning then uh, are the lessons that we can draw from these verses. If I could give the message a title, I would call it this, Lessons on the Treatment of Others. Lessons on the Treatment of Others. And I have three thoughts I want to leave with you in connection with this theme Uh, The first one is this. First lesson, family relationships set the standard for our treatment of others. Family relationships set the standard. You'll see that here. We'll look at these verses. They set the standard for our treatment of others. Notice how Paul begins this chapter in verse 1. Rebuke not an elder, he writes. Now, most modern English translations recognize this word elder not to be so much in this instance pertaining to the office of elder, but more generally to anyone who is up in years. Do not rebuke an older man. Another English translation renders it. 
And then there follows the standard that should be followed for dealing with older men. Rebuke not an elder. And now notice the contrast. Here is where the family standard comes into play. But entreat him as a father. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. So you see how reference is being made now to the realm of family government. Rebuke not any older man, but entreat him as a father. Do you see in those words the family standard? The older man or the elder is to be entreated or encouraged or appealed to as a father. And then this standard of the family is carried on to the others, beyond the elders. The younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. You see the family standard there? Father, mother, brother, sister. That's how you're to deal with people in general, and especially those within the church. And Paul is placing a strong emphasis in these verses on a standard that is assumed, which is the standard of how you treat the members of your own family. And I think the underlying principle that pertains to everyone you're dealing with could be called the principle of respect. You could say that what you find Paul doing in these verses is expounding the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This commandment is referred to by Paul in Ephesians 6 and verse 2 as the first commandment with promise. I've been reading what I've come to consider one of the best books on covenant theology that I've ever read these past couple of weeks. The book is entitled, God to Us. The author is Dr. Stephen Myers. I was attracted to the book because Dr. Beakey, in his recommendation of it, said, this is the best basic book on covenant theology I've ever read. And, uh, okay, you baited me. (laughs) I bought the book, and I'm finding that to be indeed the case. Tremendous book on covenant theology. And in this book, Myers deals with the spiritual significance of the various covenants. For example, the promise of land given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant points us spiritually and ultimately to heaven. And if you want to prove that, all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 11 and discover that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He saw beyond a slab of real estate, if you will, in the Middle East. So there's a spiritual significance to these things. And at the covenant of Sinai, Mount Sinai, in the fifth commandment, Dr. Meyer suggests that this points not merely to extended days upon the land, but to eternal life itself. The first commandment with promise, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. I suppose, well, I don't suppose, I know, you can draw the practical application from that, that you'll live longer, you'll live more peacefully as that command is obeyed, 
But that command has spiritual significance as well. It points to eternal life. The point being that if a young person is showing disrespect toward his parents, he's also showing disrespect toward the religion of his parents. He's showing disrespect toward heaven itself and toward eternal life and ultimately toward God himself. So respect is to be shown to the members of our families, and that respect is to function as a standard when it comes to dealing with others as well. The section of our shorter catechism that deals with the Ten Commandments provides a very good analysis of each commandment by asking questions not only about what the commandment is, but what is required in any of the commandments, and what is forbidden in any of the commandments. And so the fifth commandment, and I hope you know it, I hope you can quote it, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Listen now to our shorter catechism question number 64, which asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? The answer The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. We live in a culture today that considers it to be unfair, blasphemous by secular standards to even suggest that there's such a thing as superiors or inferiors much less give due honor to such relations. Then question number 65, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? And the answer, the fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. This honor is not to be neglected, nor is it to be broken. Now, I find it worth uh, noting the emphasis that Paul places on honor in this epistle to Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We come to chapter 5, verse 3. Honor, widows, that are widows indeed. Verse 17, same chapter, chapter 5. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And then chapter 6 and verse 1. And this one is certainly a, a, a verse to contemplate. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. So even in the existing institution of slavery in ancient times, in Bible times, here Christian slaves are being called upon to honor their masters. And then the reason is given for this um, honor. And it's not because slavery... Uh, was or has ever been considered a legitimate institution, uh, 
But the reason for this honor, which is to be rendered toward masters, is that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Paul addresses this same matter in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Disobedience that is called for is unto Christ. Peter adds a very important detail to this obedience when he writes in 1 Peter 2 and verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward, he writes. Do you see the important detail that Peter is adding there? Obedience was to be rendered not only to the good and gentle, but to the forward, or in other words, to the unjust or the harsh masters. Render honor to them too. Show them respect. It kind of pulls the rug out from under the notion that is common today that our obligation to others and their places as superiors or inferiors is wholly dependent upon our estimation of their character. It's not what the fifth commandment calls for. And if you find the fifth commandment to be difficult to follow because of a difficult boss or a parent that does not in every instance deserve your respect, you need to consider Christ himself. Nobody was ever mistreated or more abused than Christ. Nobody has been treated as unjustly as Christ. Nobody is deserving of more spite or contempt than those who took Christ and flogged him and spit on him and buffeted him and then nailed him to a cross. And yet 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Christ, says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He did not render the same kind of treatment to his persecutors that he was receiving from his persecutors. He bore it. He bore it patiently. And he committed himself to God. So Christ himself sets the standard. And if we're to be like Christ, then basically we're to show respect to those that we deal with. I get a little bit perturbed with Facebook posts by Christians that fail to do this. When you get pulled into the world using derogatory words or phrases in your criticisms of others, then you've sunk to the same low level that the world lives in. Rise above it, Christian. It can be done, you know. It is possible to be critical without being disrespectful. And so much of your testimony is contingent on that. All you need to do is remember Christ and remember the family standard. Rebuke not an elder, 
but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Honor or respect, you could say, is the watchword of these verses. But let's move on to the next lesson. I only need to briefly touch upon it because I've kind of included it under my first point. But here it is. Living by the standard of family relationships can be challenging. Okay? Living by the standard of family relationships can be challenging. What comes out most clearly in these verses is the truth that we all need to be dealt with on occasion. When Paul writes, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, the implication is that even though he is an elder, he may still need to be dealt with. Paul is not suggesting that older men or older women should never be dealt with. Indeed, they must be dealt with. Paul's concern here is over the manner in which they're dealt with, not whether or not they should be dealt with. So elders are not to be rebuked, but encouraged or appealed to or reasoned with. And the same applies to elderly women as well as young men and young women. We all need to be dealt with because none of us are perfect. We're all sinners, sinners saved by grace, but sinners nevertheless. Or perhaps I should say that we're all still Christians that still fight against the carnal nature that still resides with us. And because of that, there will be occasions when we need to be dealt with. We read earlier today from Job chapter 32. And I chose that chapter to read because I think you find in the character of Elihu a perfect example or illustration of what Paul is dealing with. You may recall the character Elihu. He doesn't speak until the end of the debate between Job and his three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have all gone multiple rounds with Job by the time we get to Elihu. Actually, they've gone three rounds, or Bildad and Eliphaz have gone three rounds with Job. Zophar, who appears to be the most temperamental of the three, only goes two. And at the end of this prolonged back-and-forth dispute between Job and his friends, when there appears to be at last an opportunity through silence, Elihu steps forward, so to speak. And I love the respect that he shows to Job, as well as to Job's friends, when he begins to speak. Let me read to you again the opening words of Job 32. Now you know what I'm focusing on. You know what I'm talking about with the character Elihu, the kind of respect he is showing to to elders. We read verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the kindred of Ram, Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer and yet condemned Job. 
Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder or older than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled, and Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzzite answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, Days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, Hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I gave ear to your reasons, whilst ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words. I can't help but notice the respect that's being shown for his elders in that instance. Now, some have interpreted Elihu as being no better than Job's friends. And it is true, you can cross-reference many of Elihu's sayings to what Job's friends had spoken previously. But on the other hand, Elihu, I believe, speaks from an altogether different perspective than Job's friends. I think you could say Elihu did not rebuke Job so much as he entreated him as a father. And it's noteworthy that Elihu is the only character that Job doesn't answer back to, and Elihu is the only character that is not rebuked by God himself. Not even Job could escape that rebuke from God but there was no rebuke to Elihu. I think Elihu does demonstrate to us that rebuking not, but entreating as a father, can be done. And the way it's done is through honor or respect, as well as a perspective that is based on the gospel. I take that to be the major difference between Elihu and Job's friends. So it can be done... And unfortunately, there are times when it needs to be done because Elihu says, and we know it to be the case, great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. So let's rise to the challenge by taking James' advice that he gives us in James chapter 1 and verse 19 Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. One more lesson that I'll call your attention to. And this is a lesson that's given with regard to widows, but I'm going to broaden the application beyond widows. The third and last lesson I want to call your attention to is simply this. There is a difference between being genuine and being disingenuous. A difference between being genuine and being disingenuous. You'll notice how Paul uses the phrase as it pertains to widows, that phrase, widows indeed. 
Verse 3, honor widows that are widows indeed. Verse 5, now, she that is a widow indeed. Verse 16, if any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. And in his description of widows indeed, Paul tells us in verse 5 that they trust in God and they persevere in prayer. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. Widows indeed are further described in verse 10. Well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. You could describe a widow indeed then as one who believes in Christ and demonstrates her faith through service, service to her household and service to the saints of Christ. And this kind of widow is contrasted in verse 6 to one who lives for pleasure. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. My, what application we can draw from that in our culture and in our day and age when it seems that not only widows, but people in general, men, women, boys, girls, older, younger, living for pleasure. Man's chief end is not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to indulge in entertainment and amuse myself forever. So the cultural norm goes. And would you notice what Paul says about people that fit that category? They're dead. They're dead even while they're living. They're spiritually dead. They're not really Christians, in other words. It's not hard, therefore, to look at the character and conduct of a widow indeed and conclude that basically she's a Christian indeed. What's described in these verses, you see, broadly speaking, is true of all Christians. They're saved to serve. They're saved to do good works. Those works begin in the home and make their way out from the home. We were contemplating this a little bit this morning in Sunday school, the emphasis that James places on faith and works. We didn't cite this verse, at least I don't think we did. James 2 and verse 18, Show me thy faith without thy works, I will show thee my faith by my works. And then Paul adds to his charge to Timothy in chapter 5 verse 7, And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. This is how widows indeed, or more broadly speaking, Christians indeed, pursue being blameless. And the word blameless in this chapter is the same word that's used as the qualification for the office of elder back in chapter 3. So Christians are to pursue the path that leaves them blameless. And a large part of that pursuit 
amounts to rendering obedience to the fifth commandment and making the family standard the standard by which you deal with everyone, which simply put amounts to honor and respect. So Christian, learn the lessons of the fifth commandment that Paul sets before you today. Family relationships set the standard for how we treat others. This standard presupposes, of course, that honor and respect permeate the family. This isn't always easy because no one is perfect, not even those that are well-seasoned saints. But we have Christ for our example, and we also have Christ as the source for giving us grace and wisdom and strength for such challenges that we meet in this world. And by making this family standard your standard for all your dealings with people in this world, you'll be well on the path to being blameless, and you'll be making your contribution to building the building of Christ's church and the extension of Christ's kingdom. Oh, may the Lord help us all then to take his word to heart for his honor and glory. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord, as we bring this service to a close now, we thank thee for thy word, for the instructions thou dost give to help us pursue the path that will make us blameless. We can't deny, O oh Lord, that there are challenges to this, Challenges from without, challenges from within. But, O oh Lord, we pray that Thou wilt help us to keep our focus on Christ, who sets a tremendous example for us. What marvelous treatment He rendered even to those that were so abusing Him. O oh Lord, we pray that Thou wilt help us to rise above the ways of the world that are so common and that grip us too easily. Help us to rise above it and be more and more conformed to the image of thy Son. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.